I'm Andy Murray, the Executive Director of the Major Projects Association, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our COP26 podcast. In 2018, our annual conference was on the topic of environmental sustainability, and event feedback from delegates who attended was very clear. The conversations and actions regarding environmental sustainability of major projects couldn't stop at the end of the conference. So we set up our Sustainability Ambassador Network, who have gone on to produce a guide to pledges that individuals and organisations can make, a tool to help understand the methods, standards and guides that are applicable to different aspects of major projects in relation to sustainability. And they've also put on a number of knowledge share activities, including webinars and case studies. Fast forward to November 2021, and sustainability is now core to the association's 2025 strategy, being one of three landmark objectives where we hope to move the dial on performance over the next four years. November 2021 was also notable because the UK hosted COP26 in Glasgow. The association held a roundtable discussion in Glasgow, don't mention major projects, where we discussed whether major projects are a part of the problem or a part of the solution, and if part of the problem, what needs to be done to make them part of the solution. The roundtable discussion was built on a series of prior discussions tackling difficult aspects of major projects, notably the carbon intensity of concrete, whether nuclear can be a part of the energy solution going forward, and also the transport infrastructure and the choices that we're going to have to make regarding their impact. We also held a survey of members to understand challenges and opportunities and activities that are already underway. The discussion was held at WSP's office in Glasgow and was chaired by Claire Gott of WSP and supported by a couple of our specialist colleagues. And we also had Will Hoare from Accenture, Martin McCrink from Copper Consultancy, Karim Algendi from Dark Group, Vanessa Jakovic from Freshfields, Fiona Hepplewhite and Charlie Jordan from Scottish Power and Craig Hatch from Tetratech. This part one of the, COD for, of the podcast uh, focuses on the general discussion around uh, whether major projects are part of the problem, part of the solution and what needs to be done. And it was built upon some research that Copper Consultancy undertook regarding public attitudes to environmental sustainability and the choices that we need to make. Part two was inspired partly by uh, Sir David Attenborough's Earthshot series that was broadcast uh, just ahead of uh, COP26. And we go on to ask, what do we need to do to make addressing these grand challenges of environmental sustainability more like the response that we had to addressing the challenge of delivering the 2012 Games? So how can we make it more Olympics, if you like? We do hope you find this podcast uh, part one and two useful uh, and we're also keen to hear your feedback any comments you have and of course any ideas and suggestions going forward thank you another warm welcome uh, to wsp and also to this exclusive mpa uh, don't mention series one finale um, Leading up to COP26, the MPA have hosted a series of roundtables on three challenging topics, concrete, road and rail and nuclear power, and that's to explore how major projects can be part of the carbon solution rather than adding to the climate challenge. 
So it's worth highlighting that during the first roundtable on concrete, our MPA membership were keen to confirm that actually the technology already exists um, and alternative solutions are already available, uh, but they're not being taken up quickly enough. Um, and we can't achieve the scale and pace of change required in isolation um, as individual organisations. Similarly, on the road and rail roundtable, uh, they found that the commitment to net zero still needs to be elevated so that it sits alongside all the other business imperatives. So for example, here at WSP, um, we put carbon on a par with health and safety, and we committed to halving the carbon footprint of our designs and advice by 2030. And then lastly, on the nuclear roundtable, they reiterated that nuclear does have a place in the hydrogen future, but the, that the engagement with society was vital for successful implementation. So they are three massive topics, um, but they actually all have very common themes. And our roundtables reiterated the need for, firstly, a more meaningful value of carbon. Secondly, greater private sector collaboration. And thirdly, quicker deployment of existing technologies on our major projects. So tonight's event, which is effectively the final roundtable in this Don't Mention series, we're going to address each of those common themes. And as Andy's already said, your contributions will directly influence the MPA's position statement in response to COP26. So, given this is a roundtable event, um, we'd like to start by giving you all the opportunity to introduce yourselves um, and going around the table. So, I would like to start with our, our key speakers tonight, if that's okay. So, um, Vanessa, are you okay to just introduce yourself first? <laughs> <laughs> sure, I'll set the tone for how long. Um, I'm Vanessa Jakovic. I'm an environment um, and regulatory partner in our energy practice um, at Freshfields, the law firm. Um, and my background is basically in energy transition projects and advising on ESG, particularly in the climate space across our corporate clients. Thank you. And um, Martin? Hello, I'm Martin McCrink. I'm a managing partner at COP Consultancy. Uh, COP is a, a communications consultancy that um, really helps remove, well, mitigate the risk of public reaction to, to major projects. That the way that we often view them and feel about them is very different to how they're perceived and that presents a, a risk to programs, to costs, to political appetite, all sorts of issues that are arisen by, um, by the public not really grasping what we're doing. In many ways we kind of live in a bubble and part of our job is to make sure that when the public looks at that bubble they kind of see a, a st the story that we mean to give across, not the one always that we, that we portray. And that relates to projects, it relates to businesses, it relates to how we conduct ourselves generally. Um, and we've done some research into how the public feels about infrastructure on various subjects, but most recently Net Zero, which I can talk about in a minute. Um, I think the what, what we're finding is that the um, the disconnect between how the public feels about these projects and how we feel about them really is about where they join the story. Often chapter two, two or three through the book, and often we've already written one and two and expect them to grasp what's going on, and we get a reaction which is I don't quite get it. And our job is to is to fill in the gaps, really. Thanks, Martin. And Charlie. Hi, Charlie Jordan. I work with Scottish Power Renewables, a part of the Iberdrola Group. Mm -hmm. Within the company, I head up our offshore wind business in the UK. 
In addition to that, I also look after the offshore wind projects that we're building globally. We're currently building projects throughout uh, Europe and also in the US at the moment. And we're expanding our portfolio, moving further afield into what's certainly quite an exciting industry. Within our business, we've been very, as a utility, but very focused on green energy. You know, over the 20 years we've been on this energy transition, we've cut away all of our coal-fired generation, we've moved into only generating green energy, and we continue now to, to develop our business and do, do so globally. And Karim? Hi, um, my name is Karim Algendi, I'm a lead urban sustainability consultant with DAR, DAR Henderson, and I look after um, large-scale urban and infrastructure projects uh, from an urban sustainability and urban resilience point of view. Thank you. And we do have a few guests here tonight. So, William, would you be all right to introduce yourself? Thank you, Claire. Um, William Hall, I'm from Accenture. I sit in our energy transition strategy team. Um, I started with the MPA and I guess my career working in project delivery and I've moved, I guess, up the, the not the value chain, the, I guess the project lifecycle all the way to hydrogen and CCS and some of the more abstract projects. So I guess my interest in this topic is making sure the ends connect and at the moment I think to your point um, they don't always, especially when we start talking about the, the public. Um, my, I guess my current big interest and I will bang on about it is really hydrogen and CCS and how those you know those tools are solutions for the wider ecosystem whether it's electric vehicles or whether it's renewables build out and how we need to look at them at a energy system view um so really excited to be here and thank you for having me in the lovely wsp offices <laughs> Very um, welcome. Craig? thank you claire uh, i'm craig hatch i'm uk president of tetra tech uh, a global technical management and engineering consultancy uh, 20, 21,000 high-end scientists, engineers, project managers, proudly leading with science, supporting our clients delivering their major projects in a sustainable way. Uh, my involvement with the MPA was to sit on the Don't Mention Nuclear panel. We're, we're heavily involved in the nuclear sector in the UK and globally, and uh, it's something that we believe is part of the energy solution. Brilliant, thank you. And um, Fiona? Hi, I'm Fiona Heppelwhite. I'm the Head of Energy Policy for Scottish Power Renewables. I work alongside Charlie, although the, my team covers both offshore and onshore. So we've seen the kind of, um, I guess, in terms of policy, the, um, you know, the difference between um, the political, um, you know, what they think about different technologies. Um, my job really is to kind of shape that policy landscape, but that does come into some of the things you were talking about in terms of how we message you know, what we're trying to do as a business and how it impacts on communities that we, we develop in. Brilliant. And I'd like to introduce my colleagues as well. So, Abdullah, would you like to go first? Thanks. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, my name is uh, Abdullah Mohammed. I work as a, a power system team lead in uh, WHP here. And I work with a team which is uh, we look after the power system studies, including renewables and uh, HVDC systems, and uh, it's mainly everything related to the power systems. And I'm Philippe Gross, I'm a principal electrical engineer working for Abdullah. So yes, more focusing on the technical delivery of project on renewable, but also have some experience on the nuclear side as well. Brilliant, thank you. And as for me, I lead up the UK industry business for WSP. So um, that covers everything from pharmaceuticals and life sciences through to chemicals, whether that be fine chemicals or heavy metals, all the way through to gas and hydrogen. Um, and for the last five years, I've been leading WSP's programs going net zero by 2025. So real pers personal passion there for me as well. Um, so 
Before we dive straight into the Q&A section, as Andy did allude to, um, we'd like to invite Martin to give Copper Consultancy's insight into the public attitudes towards net zero and climate change, but specifically through the context of some of your recent research. Oh, great. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for hosting us. And Andy, thank you for chairing today. It's, um, it's really good to be here. Um, so this, this survey was conducted um, just at the start of the autumn with um, just over a thousand members of the public and we asked them about 40 or so questions and we've um, we've taken some of the questions put it all together and come up with a with a few themes and, and areas that uh, which are which I'll share so just to start at the very broadest level um, it's only two percent now of the public that thinks that climate change isn't real the rest are unanimously convinced that this is a problem um, and when you ask the public what's the issue of the day um, and what should government be focusing on, COVID is top of the list, then it's climate change, then it's healthcare education. So it's really up there as, a, as an issue that the public cares about. And if you remove COVID, people put healthcare at the top, then it's climate change. So it's, it's not like it's a, it's a here today, gone tomorrow issue, it's, it's there. Um, and it's in, I think in the public's mind it stretches into lots of different areas as well based on the um, on the kind of commentary we get. 76% um, believe that everything that happens at COP and beyond is about future generations and 76% all that same 76% believe that this generation has a responsibility for the next generation on climate change alone. So it's not like it's a um, it's a kind of fudging thing from the public. They really do understand that this, this is problematic. Um, there's an interesting thing about, then about what we, what we do about it. We find that there is a preference from the public that personal responsibility plays a bigger role than government legislation. There is a, people don't want to be told what to do. We could argue this research was, you know, we just come out of the national lockdown, people don't really feel the appetite for being told exactly what to do. But I think there is something in this that kind of bears out in the rest of the research that the public does feel that they, that they, um, they want to be responsible and interestingly the, pub the public does also recognize that the actions they take have a direct link on on what happens as well so there is a there is a, a belief in in um, taking responsibility for yourself not just finding some, somebody else to take control of it there is um, following on from that there is a, an issue around apathy around our approach at the moment so when we quiz people on how they feel about government's strategy at the moment the biggest response is a shrug of the shoulders and I don't really know. It looks okay. You get some people that say, yes, it's definitely right. You get others that say, definitely not. And you get the big majority in the UK says, uh, you know, maybe, ask, some, ask somebody else. And we've looked into some um, energy generation um, types as well to explore that in a way that might make sense to more people as well. So. Um, Wind and solar are really high up there as areas where people say it's, a, say it's really popular. Um, when you talk about CCS, hydrogen, nuclear, um, you get very low opposition levels. It's about 10%, which is tiny for people that say, I actually fundamentally think this is wrong. The big bit in the middle around that, which is understandable because there are newer technologies in terms of policy delivery in the UK, um, is a bit more of apathy as well. Um, what we have found is that apathy can quite easily become opposition if it's not dealt with. You can you can take apathy for granted to assume it's going to go your way, but um, that doesn't always happen. There is a job to do to explain this when, when it becomes a reality. And when people have asked what it might mean for them, they haven't got a clue. 
there is just a, a sense of it's something the government's talked about. I don't really know what it means, but when it does come along, believe me, I'll tell you what I think. Um, there is uh, there is an in, there is an interesting um, there is an interesting conversation around trade-offs about what what the public is willing to look at. So we've looked at um, when people say it's their responsibility. Fine. What is it you're willing to take accountability for? The fundamental theme we found is that people are willing to trade what they they're willing to trade how they go about doing something, not what they do. So they want to travel, they want to live in the same place, they want to eat what they eat. They do not want to be told that's going to go. They are willing to have a serious conversation about how they do those things. And there is a there is almost a, a willingness to, to want to know more, but there is a real unpopularity in, in the what, and that creates a, a conflict, an inner conflict, in that people are saying, I want to take responsibility, but actually I've got my red lines. Um, when you start to look at the net zero transition, um, we find that there is a, um, almost quite neatly in a graph by age, the younger you are, the more likely you are to say that the transition is going to be okay to net zero. The older you are, the more likely you are to say that I'm a bit scared of it and it feels like there's nothing in it for me, job prospects are dwindling, um, this isn't really about me and I feel more marginalised. And from another piece of research we've done, that's exactly the same graph as you get from Brexit as well. There's a feeling of, uh, but in, in reverse, you get you get this feeling of um, the reason I, you know, I voted for Leave is because of these reasons I feel alienated. So that you can sense there is a risk of people saying, actually, do you know what, enough's enough. I don't really want to do this anymore. But you find that, as I say, that there is a younger generation that's really, really keen on this. Um, there's a gender split here as well. Women are much more interested in the, in discussions around those trade-offs, understanding what the nuances are. Women are more interested in in taking more interested in personal responsibility being a a, um, a greater tool by the UK, um, and more women are also more sceptical that government legislation alone will just will just deliver what we've got here. So um, that gender split plays out in in also in the opportunity of net zero as well. More women see it as opportunity than, than men. Um, paying for net zero is a is a really tricky thing, and that there was one consensus that came up, which is there is no consensus, other than general taxation is seen as the least popular route by pretty much every demographic you can find. If there is, um, the, the only areas where it does spike slightly is if um, you're more like more likely to vote Labour, more likely to vote Lib Dem or Green, you're more likely to say that, that that's a good idea. But even then, there is still scepticism that general taxation will solve it. People, but to, people do feel better about a, a pointed taxation that is that is aimed at something. Um, we find that um, when, it, when we take it to, to major projects, the expectation has been set that um, that there needs to be a better story around around net zero, and we're, we're not off the hook really. But at the same time, the public does not expect every project to be net zero. They really don't. They recognise the fact that it that there is a that we're fitting into a, into an organisation and a structure that, that works, and. Um, but what is finished is the idea of not having a net zero story on a project. It, the way we've characterised it is that no news is bad news and that, that we now need to come up with something. And people grasp the, the nuance around this as well. Um, I think it's, it's only actually 10% that have said that they would oppose a project if 
if it wasn't net, net zero full stop, but delivered e economic benefit, delivered social value, delivered other benefits locally to, to wherever the project's located, they would find that a reason to, to push ahead with the project. And actually net zero is becoming um, a tool to oppose projects, but when you delve into people's reasons a bit further, it doesn't actually register as a reason. It's still, what's in it for me? What about my life? Me, me, me is still way more important than climate change in people's minds. And it is also the same with when they want to support a project as well. What people say is different from what they believe. Um, it's not okay to say this thing's going to burn the environment, but actually I don't really care about it. People don't say that, but when you do examine what the issues are that they press, that is, that is a fundamental issue. But it doesn't stop the campaign against something because it's the right thing to do from the public's perspective. There is an export conversation here as well. The public doesn't view net zero as enough. They expect levelling up, they expect a global export opportunity and they want UK-based jobs as a basic and then net zero. They don't, reducing emissions on its own is not net zero in the public's mind. And I'll stop there because I'll keep going forever, but it's probably not particularly helpful. Yeah, that's a brilliant point to end on, actually, um, to give the wider context to today's discussion. But also an important reminder that the engagement with society throughout major project delivery is vital on our journey to net zero because ultimately they're our biggest stakeholder and our biggest beneficiary on our major projects. Um, so with, with that in mind, and also following the, the COP26 announcement that the UK will be the first to deliver a net zero aligned financial centre, um, I'd like to kick off the, the questions with a quick position statement um, from each of our key speakers tonight. So Vanessa, if I could start with you, <laughs> I won't keep picking on you, <laughs> um, are the COP26 goals mission possible or mission impossible? Um, I think it depends how you define the goals, um, but at its very broadest level in terms of um, overall reduction um, of emissions, um, we have to believe that it's possible. We just have to, and there are routes through. Um, and the question I think, particularly for the major projects um, sector, is how do we A, deliver the projects that are needed to transition energy, to transition transport, to transition the way that we live and where we live and how we live, um, how we travel um, in terms of sort of the macro changes. Um, and the other thing is how do we improve traditional projects so that the, the projects that aren't part of a transition are achieved in a way that's um, that's going to contribute to that overall net zero goal and whether that's through new technology or behavioural change or a combination of everything, there's got to be a route through. Um, and I, I, I'm an optimist. <laughs> I think at the moment, particularly in the UK, we have political support, we have public support, we have money. There is so much dry powder in the infrastructure sector and so much impetus from investors to put into clean projects. There's political support for it and we have the technology. Um, I actually just think it's about finding where it's getting stuck, clearing those barriers and actually just building things. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, and Charlie, I'll come to you next. Obviously, as a sponsor of COP26, um, Scottish Power are clearly advocating uh, this change. So I think I already know your answer to this question, but mission possible, mission impossible? Yeah, no, it doesn't uh, take too much to take the fork to know where I would sit in this debate. But 
I think it needs to be Mission Possible, and I think we do need to be optimistic about what we can do. And I think also we need to create a, a sense of urgency about how we go ahead when we do it. I mean, some of the, the social scenes we've seen with you know hundreds of thousands of people marching over the globe, particularly young people, I really feel there's a moral obligation on us to do it for, for these people, for future generations. And whether we see the trajectory as saying at 1.5 degrees, 1.8, 2.3, in some ways that is not the core question. The question is what can we do to make more immediate impacts in terms of climate change? I really feel, and looking at COP26, I think you see many examples, many harrowing examples, many inspiring examples of people's attitudes, people have been impacted by the effects of climate change today. So I do feel it's incumbent on us all to, to start making a difference. I mean, I believe that we've got the tools, I think we've got the expertise, there is absolutely the finance available. What we need to do is shape that, to shape it with political policies, private investment practices, and I think then make sure that we can start delivering major projects that are going to help make a big difference. So I do think that there's a lot of reason, in fact, every reason to be optimistic, but it needs to start today, and it needs to start with every one of us playing my part. Yeah, absolutely. And Kareem, what's your view? Can we do what COP26 are asking of us? Um, in the UK? Yes, absolutely. And then that's why we have the CCC, where we're the Climate Change Committee, and we have a mandate by, by, by Parliament to, to monitor progress and a, a, a number of years uh, up, to, up to the 2030 and 2050 targets. Um, Lord Dubin, who is the head of the Climate Change Committee, has once uh, described the current efforts uh, in quite simplest, simple terms. He said the government gets 9 out of 10 on ambitions and 4 out of 10 on implementation. So the, uh, in, from that perspective, I think there's some ironing out to be done uh, in terms of um, our projects, the, the transition, especially on the big uh, items that are hard to tackle, uh, which are uh, buildings, uh, existing buildings, especially residential buildings that definitely need to be decarbonized in order to achieve that. But in, in terms of the bigger picture, I think one has to be optimistic. I think I would echo everything that has been said so far in terms of the, not being able to give up hope on that. Uh, the reason being is um, we can't afford to have dangerous climate change. And so we'll have to, we'll have to put uh, all the effort that we can put in in order to um, bring the numbers down as much as we can. Um, and and I, I absolutely agree that there, uh, we have the money, we have the technology, and, and, and we have uh, the human capacity um, to, to develop the solutions that are required. And we're not that far off, um, in fact, in the trajectory. The, um, the, um, the latest assessments of uh, different countries in terms of their performance, the CCPI index just came out today, and I think the UK was number seven, I believe. It went down a couple of uh, slots on their rankings, um, but still considered to be reasonably well. So uh, we just uh, need to keep um, pushing the boundary a little bit in order to uh, achieve the goals that, we've aimed, that we set up to, get, to achieve. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that we're all on the same page, that we're here for the right reasons, it is mission possible, yeah. Um, but to pick on, up on your point, Vanessa, that actually um, it's not just the what, it's it's actually the how, and you started to touch on it, but how, how do we take the next step? Um, it, in terms of delivering all projects. I mean, Major projects, yeah. Um, I think I, I think the goal is to try and figure out where the barriers are because we do actually have 
the fundamentals aligned in the right direction and it's figuring out what's actually causing delays um and obviously they're different in in different contexts every you know every project has its own barriers um be it community engagement sort of you know national support but local protest or whether um as we found with our work in the nuclear sector um, and particularly with the SMRs where we've had the technology to roll out SMRs that are safer and cheaper for a really long time now. Rolls-Royce has been building min mini nuclear reactors in Derby for 40 years. We know how to do it. Um, but you speak to anybody in that sector and what's happening is leaders in government really want it to happen. Business really wants to happen financiers really want it to happen it's actually in that sort of middle level of bureaucracy where there's just so much delay that the devex to get anything to financial close is just a massive barrier and we have to figure out what we're doing wrong yeah and interesting because to pick up on one of the barriers that was highlighted in the mpa survey that we did um actually procurement was came across as the one of the biggest barriers and I think you know Vanessa you're touching on that point but um you know one of those is that feeds into that discussion around procurement is you know how do we account for the cost of going zero within our projects that we can deliver that and I wonder Charlie if you've got any thoughts on that I think a lot of it is knowing what it is you want to procure and how you're going to procure it I mean I can take the examples of uh, the projects we've worked on the technology we've deployed generally hasn't existed at the time when we're starting the project. You know, we've all of our offshore wind farms that were built typically have turbines that have been at best a prototype, often a design at the time when we're placing orders of hundreds of millions of pounds to, to, to buy these. So I do think in terms of looking ahead, providing you've got the right level of expertise, the right level of engagement with the, the, the manufacturer's supply chain and clearly the right knowledge that these projects are going to come ahead and that comes into maybe political support that they will and that stimulates the investment, the technology, you know, the development of these projects. And I think with all of that, you can look further, further ahead because what we're buying today or what's available today is not what we're going to need in the future. And I think probably that's a key point in the procurement. Thanks, Charlie. I appreciate I put you on the spot there. No um, we've got one more question to go to the key speakers and then we'd like to bring in some, some um, uh, Q&A uh, around the table. Um, I'm just touching on this point around how, Kareem, I know that you're particularly passionate around um, urban resilience. So I just wondered on the how point, um, bringing into the wider topic of, of um, the, the carbon agenda. If there's anything you wanted to add there about the how. Yes, yeah, so um, in my world, urban sustainability goes alongside urban resilience and in major projects, uh, urban resilience um, plays a significant role. Improving the urban resilience of a city or a development uh, takes place through major projects or it can be undermined by major mm. projects. So if, for example, if you focus on road transport only, you're automatically taking away resilience because you don't create multimodality, for example, in terms of transportation. If you don't consider green infrastructure, which is something I'm quite passionate about, then you already create uh, downstream uh, stormwater management issues uh, elsewhere. And, and I, f I believe there is a synergy to be achieved between um, some of these systems on the resilience side and the sustainability side. So, for example, um, maintaining natural hydrology, so if you, any of these uh, uh, large infrastructure projects that disrupt natural hydrology can um, 
can be designed in a way that includes a green infrastructure inside within the design itself and as a result it will maintain the hydrology for sustainability for nature for ecosystems um, while at the same time reduce the flood risks which is which is which improves resilience as well um, and, and I, I wouldn't go as far as saying that major projects should become less major uh, but they need to be broken up a little bit in order to be able to integrate that resilience better the, the size and the scale of it can sometimes become less um, less resilient less flexible uh, less able to adapt to uh, changes in the environment and changes to, to the climate and we're in this country we're expecting an increase in precipitation increase in extreme weather events so we'll, that's uh, that's uh, should be on everyone's minds when we consider things like gray infrastructure uh, today, I think I think uh, alternatives should definitely be considered um, on all major projects. Yeah, absolutely. And touching on that, as we as we move towards the more new technologies innovation piece, which you're which you're touching on there, um, the big question is how we actually enable faster deployment. We've talked about some of the technologies that are already there, but actually we're struggling to deploy them. So, you know, what are your thoughts on how we unlock? climate change or sorry climate repair innovations and new technologies it's about breaking down the barriers you know a good example is the government's 10 point plan i think we agree with everything in that but actually where are the enablers behind it and that's what we need to do is make sure then that for people to be investing up front in technology they can see the opportunity they can see the need and i think that's a, a key point i think engagement collaboration at all levels is absolutely essential we need the government the regulators to see the vision to buy into that so they can support projects i guess typically major projects can take what average 10 years to come to fruition but that time technology you know might almost be quite passing it's a uh, it's developed life so i think it's important that we can try and break down the barriers increase the collaboration to try and speed up the deployment of projects yeah absolutely and collaboration is definitely something we want to touch on a bit later tonight um just picking up on one of the points that was mentioned in um, one of the early roundtables we did that actually um, we heard that support is still needed to create that environment where there is confidence to invest and deploy those those innovations. I just wondered if either of you would, would agree with that statement. Sorry, I missed this statement. <laughs> Let's coughing I'll let Vanessa answer then. <laughs> Yeah, I think we're still we're still retrofitting. Um, certainly, speaking as a lawyer, you know, our job is to figure out how to sort of document the investment so that it, you know um, you're sort of channeling the money through into the new technology and the new ways of doing things. And um, I think the challenge is that we're still using old infrastructure to do that and old ways of thinking. And a lot of the sort of major deployers of this type of technology um, are now trying to sort of play in a world that has a startup culture. You know, imagine if you had some of the biggest publishers in the world driving the dot-com boom, it just never would have happened because they would have been using old ways of thinking and you tend to find that you're, you're seeing risk models in investment committees in big oil and gas companies trying, you know, or big mining companies or big sort of trading houses who are then trying to apply their massive infrastructure to new technologies, which is not really fit for purpose. I think we need to just fit, rethink how we, um, how we structure the deployment of new technologies. That's a really interesting point, and I think one that in at the MPA we can definitely consider as part of major project um, improvement. So yeah, really good point. Thank you. Um, right, the next question I'd like to open up, get everyone engaged a bit more. Um, 
it's about collaboration so I think it's really important that we all have a say on this one um, I think we are acutely aware that um, major project collaboration is urgently required um, and yet there are still barriers across the private sector in particular um, it's actually one of the reasons why at WSP we co-founded the Pledge to Net Zero. I don't know if any of you guys have heard of that, but it's part of the UN Race to Zero and it commits environmental services firms to the science-based carbon targets, but also to report on it publicly. Um, but I'm, I'm interested to hear from you guys. I'm interested to understand um, how we can improve collaboration and build on each other's experiences. So I'll open that to the floor and anyone would like to, to take that. I'd love to comment, Claire, actually on Vanessa's point about, and it's similar, it's the same type of thing, but I've been... We need better consultants, apparently. <laughs> well, was, one of my points is that I find, you know, going back to the very beginning about the public, I find my job quite difficult to explain, you know, but I mean, we'll save that for another day and I, you know, PowerPoint slides and what have you. But just on collaboration, I think the most fantastic thing I've seen in the last couple of weeks or week and a half has been this big push on industrial clusters so I don't know there was a UN like a UN event um, dare I say we had an event but like there have been a lot of events on industrial clusters and you've got competitors in traditional industries CEOs standing on stage saying this guy's done a really good job and we're gonna spend billions of pounds together on shared infrastructure and you know we were talking about CCS and someone said oh well CCS it's just reverse LNG contracting and they went no 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 we can do better than that let's not take the old model and so to your point I just thought it was one of the great examples and and you know we've been working with not like the clusters in the UK and the track one the government's done a great job if you look at the US and you look at Europe there's slightly less government involvement and actually it's just the private organizations who are really pulling it like, especially in the US where there's much more of a competitive nature you've got big US oil and gas companies coming together saying we need to do this we have targets and how do we share it and I think we as a major project group you know we haven't even got to building the project we're just agreeing to be friends at the moment mm. those types of examples and especially from the UK looking to the broader world especially I think we have a job to highlight that and I thought that was my just on the collaboration point last week hearing about clusters and the trap one you know the sequencing for the phase two came out yesterday think we need to highlight those points and I'm, I would love to hear the legal details of it at some point maybe not for tonight Vanessa, <laughs> but you know I think that just on collaboration has been a huge highlight you know in the last week and got a small opportunity and a small window to rephrase how organizations can collaborate um, and I think the regulators are coming along. We've seen the European Commission take a real leadership role in trying to find ways to soften competition or to facilitate green collaboration, and the UK government is doing the same thing. Um, because I think traditionally the big operators have been very nervous about competition antitrust law, um, and it's really held us back. You know, I think we have a relatively inefficient offshore transmission grid as a result. Um, and that's just one example of... You know, if we if we got that wrong, then what else um, can we fix with collaboration? I think just to sorry to pick up on the the offshore point, I think one example of where collaboration in terms of the industry was really successful was the offshore wind sector deal, mm. where industry came together to actually you know say to government, well look, this is what we can deliver if you set the right policy framework with targets, etc. I think that was a really successful example of how industry came together to really drive policy forward at a time the offshore wind industry was probably you know, there was some political favour, but there was also lots of political favour for lots of other technologies that were at the time fighting for that 
um, support. So I think that was a really good example of collaboration. Certainly something I you know, saw from the inside as being a very successful way. Government certainly liked the fact that industry came together to present a kind of united picture and that united kind of um, vision of what the industry could do. So. That might be one to delve in offline then as well then. Well, Conscious Martin, you wanted to come to <clears throat> um, I think on the collaboration point, you, you usually find that if collaboration is working well, the public can sense it. And if it's not working well, they can call it out. And they don't, they don't use that language, but they just get a sense when things feel a bit disjointed or, or unclear. And one of the things we found about that is that the, the public, is an interesting kind of twist we found it, the public expects projects and governments to be braver than they would be as individuals. So they would say, I'll do this, but actually I want government to do something bigger. And that takes a lot of collaboration. It takes a lot of, you can't do it on your own, you've got to, you've got to work together, right? So I think the flip side of that is the public also finds it a bit flat and boring when they see incremental, small, almost quite, might, they might be the right changes, but they're a bit dull, basically. And that causes the public to to, to switch off on, on a subject like this. So again, when you do come along with something, you, you haven't got the, the um the political capital if you like to, to carry on what, what you're doing i think the um sorry go on. no no go for it um i think the, the other part of it as well is where um where the, the public is looking for um involvement they do view themselves as part of the projects as well and they, they sense a bit of a us and them sometimes and often that's driven by the fear of a reaction of what we're going to get and usually there's a temptation to just kind of hunker down and get through something rather than actually make the best it can be. Um, and once you're into that, it's a, it's a trap because yeah. you're constantly justifying your existence, then getting through to the next stage, making it worse. There is actually a, a bit of honesty required with the public, I think, sometimes. And actually asking them what they think a bit more as well. And the, la the last place to do that is through public consultation. The first place to do it is actually through a, a bit more of a public campaign to, to explain why we exist as an industry, why we're not just trying to eke out the last bit of carbon we can, but actually this is this is the solution to the to the challenge we have. I don't think the public feels that yet. They, they see a couple of headlines here and there, but not as a consistent story. It's an interesting point because um, we like we've likened the need for carbon urgent action to uh, the business imperative that we gave to, to health and safety. Now one of the solutions with, with safety was to open up an open source information sharing platform for, for, for safety. You know, is that something that we should be looking at for carbon? Not only would it engage the stakeholders you're talking to, Martin, but also the private sector competition as well. I don't know what people's views of that are. Should I say that one again? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I think they probably would. Um, the challenge is getting the public to even care in the first place about something mm. that they feel is technical. So th th there's this um, there's this kind of assumption that whenever you talk to the public, that, that they are they don't get it. But actually, most people in the, edu in, in the public have been to the education system. They probably stopped learning about a subject when they got to about 14, 15, because they dropped it to do something else. So most people have a kind of 10 or 11 year old understanding of, of a subject, but they're really advanced in something else like, like we all are. If somebody asked us to comment on something completely different sector, we would struggle you know, to, to grasp it. So there is a job to do to explain what that even means in the first place. So it isn't just ignored, but it is actually a justification of what we're doing. Um, the danger is you pump some evidence at people and they just, mm. they can't, they don't know what to do with it other than 
they, they feel like being sold to sometimes. So I think there is a there is a, a sort of public education job to do on on the challenge that we're facing and how we're responding to it. So we've got some good case studies talking to to, to Will and Fiona's points. We've got a piece around needing to um, engage with public in a slightly different way to what we're doing now. Does anybody have any other ideas they want to put on the table for improvements to collaboration? Continued softening of regulation, competition law. I but so. I think that's already been started. Okay. I'm just going to say as well, uh, sometimes I think it's about explaining what it is you want to do so that people buy into it. And I was giving the example, Fiona talked about the, the offshore wind sector deal. But we've got some informal advice from some supporters within government, you know, going back probably about five years ago was we probably weren't telling the story as well as some other industries were, maybe some other less noble industries, allow <laughs> me such a phrase, but it was really putting the challenge back to us is are you explaining so that people who might naturally support are willing to support? And I think it was something we had to look at and I think that is the same when we look at individual projects or major projects as a collective. Yeah, it's an interesting point because I think a lot of evidence suggests that, and Martin, you might know this, um, but that actually people can understand a story rather than typically as engineers, we, we, we tend to just give them facts and figures and get them to understand, but storytelling mm -hmm. does make a real difference. So yeah, really good point, Charlie. And actually, instead of that point, we were talking about climate change, offsetting carbon, but the thing actually got the attention more was the industrial benefits you were bringing, the skills, the programmes, and that's what really got the ball rolling. And then people started recognising the, the environmental benefits that come with it. But that was what so kick-started the process. And it was telling, trying to tell the climate change story. Yeah. It was semi-effective. You told the industrial benefits, and that was much better received. Back to the me, me, me. How does it affect me, please? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, just the last piece around collaboration. Um, conscious that there's an element of incentivization around the private sector collaboration. I know it's the, the taboo subject, but um, we've seen that the, the approach has been and can be successfully deployed, to your point, Will, on government-funded streams, but other than those case studies, how can we replicate that in the private sector, you know, the organisations that, that we largely represent here today? How, how can we replicate that? I mean, big question. One of the things I think is, and maybe it's slightly avoiding your question, and going back to the consumer, is driving consumer demand. That's free, you know, in, in the raw sense of the word. There's no, I mean, maybe it's not, but there's like, there's no government incentive to drive consumer demand. You know, that is a, it's a, it's a bucket that's empty. It's just really hard to get hold of. And, um, you know, if I give one, probably my favourite example, and there's probably someone who's doing it, but I... I imagine in 10 years time, maybe five years time, Apple will come out with a green iPhone, mine's blue, and they will say this costs 500 pounds more, you know, twice, you know, 50% more, but it is made from recyclable metal and recyclable steel and it's renewable. And because I like virtue signaling, I will buy it. And I think people will, I mean, maybe not 50%, but I think people will buy things like that. And it's a similar question to you know, buying green steel for my Volvo, just bought the first batch of green steel for their cars. You know, oh, am I gonna be proud to drive it? And maybe this is a first world problem, but I think that, ex that concept extends a little bit further. You know, we're talking about green steel for offshore wind turbines. You know, I think 70% of the weight, don't get me wrong, is the weight of the steel. 
So imagine if we could have green steel for turbines, they could be recyclable. We build our hydrogen industry and by that, in like some sort of circular economy, we actually then build our offshore wind industry as well. And we've found a route to kind of have a nice little circular economy. I think those don't actually, the, those conversations don't require incentive, but maybe, you know, getting the first projects off the ground do. But I think that bucket of consumer demand is something that's untapped. If I was going to do a PhD, that's what it would be on. So I think it's the no, hardest. It's really interesting thing yeah. about this. One is that Volvo car project, I read a really interesting article saying that that is only going to increase the sort of overall cost of that electric Volvo car by like 7%. Yeah. to make the whole thing green, which is insane when you go back all the way through green steel. The other thing is um, we've been working with one of um, our big mining clients who has a very big iron ore business, um, which you know has very impressive mat curves for scope one and two emissions, um, but obviously scope three is where the challenge is mm -hmm. with green steel and collaboration is absolutely pretty much the only method they have to green their scope three because they have to partner with their customers and there's real difficulty you have competitive tension when you're in procurement because you're the customer and you set your terms but actually setting the terms in terms of selling a product the collaboration that's coming through in that space um, is absolutely you know on a global scale and you know including customers in china who have no regulatory driver to do it um, is absolutely brilliant and it's because then you have customers like Volvo and it becomes a more, a more attractive product and collaboration sort of vertically in the supply chain is absolutely where the big wins are. Thank you for listening to part one of this COP26 podcast. My takeaway from our discussion was that the scale of the challenges and changes that we need to make to address the climate crisis can be overwhelming. But our discussions also show that we do have political support, public support, investor support, and also the technology and solutions needed to rise to those challenges. We need to continue to make the 1% individual improvements, but we also need to come together collectively to seek and find game changers to how we uh, define, initiate, and deliver major projects. Please do come back for part two of this podcast where Claire Gott asks our panellists what's the one thing they would do to rise to such challenges? How can we make our response to the climate crisis more Olympics?